You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Quest for Sustainable Business, an epic journey in search of corporate responsibility. Holism and hope towards a sane society. South Africa. The whole is greater. After graduating, I spent a year of working and traveling in Canada and the UK. More about these experiences in chapters 16 and 21. After that, I returned to South Africa. By then, I desperately wanted to focus on alternative models of business, so I began a master's in business science at the University of Cape Town. My chosen topic was holistic business, a study of synergy in organizations. Through my research, I intended to apply Jan Christian Smuts's far-reaching theory of holism, as expounded in his book, Holism and Evolution, to business. I could see a clear contrast between a holistic model of organizations and the rational model of commerce that Tom Peters and Robert Waterman criticized so effectively in their best-selling book, In Search of Excellence. As it turned out, I became deeply frustrated with the reductionistic process of academic research and gave up on the Masters when I was offered a job with the international management consultancy Capgemini. By then, however, my research had put me in touch with some of the leading thinkers on progressive business, people like Jan Bakkelen, founder of the Pathfinder Network in Sweden, Francis Kinsman, founder of the Business Network in London and author of The New Agenda and Millennium, Edward Posey, founder of the Gaia Foundation, Peter Russell, author of The Awakening Earth, and futurist Hazel Henderson, author of Paradigms in Progress, Life Beyond Economics. Before diving into the choppy waters of consulting, I wrote up my research findings in an article called Holistic Business, which was published in New Perspectives in 1994. The article explores what a holistic employee and a holistic organization might look like. I noted that we could build on the work of Douglas McGregor, who challenged the idea that, and I quote, authority is the central indispensable means of managerial control, end quote, by introducing his theory why of motivation, as well as the breakthrough thinking of Abraham Maslow, whose concept of Eusychian management integrated the being values of his hierarchy of needs, such as self-actualization, into a workplace context. My conclusion was, and I quote, despite all the evidence and framework supporting the notion of the holistic individual, business has yet to respond in a meaningful way. Employees are still regarded as inputs to production and expenses in business rather than creative beings and genuine assets. People are still expected to leave their emotions, intuition, dreams, fears, family, community concerns, and myriad other qualities characteristic of being fully human outside the workplace. And as workers, they are still expected to be motivated and inspired by monetary incentives, increasing productivity and profit-making, as opposed to personal development, genuine service to others, and the search for meaning in their lives. 
the time is long overdue for business to begin serving humans rather than the other way around, end quote. At the time, I became particularly interested in the work of Dutch psychiatrist Bernard Lieverhut, in which he conceived of the development of organizations through three phases, the pioneering phase, the phase of differentiation, and finally the phase of integration, in other words, the holistic model. For me, holistic business seemed to be about flattening the hierarchy and moving towards a network-type organization. Along similar lines, Rosabeth Moss Cantor, professor of business administration at Harvard Business School at the time, suggested that future companies would need to pool their resources with others, ally to exploit an opportunity, or link systems in a partnership. Similarly, I was recommending that companies apply Smuts's concept of fields of influence and embrace a stakeholder approach. Examples of holistic business were at the time few and far between. The then chairman of Canon was one notable exception, describing that in the highest stage of corporate evolution, a global consciousness emerges and the corporation sees itself contributing to the whole of mankind. This aligned to what Peter Senge, professor of systems thinking at MIT's business school, had been calling the fifth discipline, or systems thinking, growing out of his earlier ideas around metanoic or transformative organizations. I still believe that business can learn a lot from Smuts's theory of holism. He teaches us that while the tendency in the universe is towards higher and more complex forms of organization, degeneration also occurs. There are holes that are weak, inchoate, and these must be eliminated. In other words, those organizations least able to transform themselves into more holistic entities will have failed to adapt and will consequently die. According to Smuts, this is after all the fundamental law of the universe, survival of the holist. Fostering new economics. My baptism of fire into the real world of commerce started when I joined Capgemini as a strategy analyst in April 1994. The 18 months I worked for the global management consultancy, then ranked third in the world in terms of revenues, were at the same time exhilarating and exhausting, inspiring and dispiriting. On the one hand, the firm had a very holistic view of business. Their business transformation model was designed to help companies to reframe, restructure, revitalize and renew. It recognized that investment in people was just as important as investment in processes and that soft values were as essential as hard numbers. However, in practice, the consulting life was a burnout track with a myopic focus on finance. We were usually long gone before our business process re-engineering efforts took their full human toll. And as for environmental issues, they hardly even made it onto the agenda. During this time, I managed to write and publish an article in Human Resource Management calling for a new paradigm in business in which companies move beyond obsession with profits, competition and rationality. However, my growing disillusionment, fatigue and cynicism with mainstream consulting eventually got the better of me and I headed back to the UK to pursue a Master's in Human Ecology at the University of Edinburgh 
more about this in chapter 21. It turned out to be a watershed moment in my career, and since then I've been privileged to be able to focus completely on sustainable business. Soon after arriving back in Cape Town, having completed my master's, I joined with futures researcher Dr. Art Rokens de Lange and with others to set up the South African New Economics or SANE Foundation. We described ourselves loftily as an autonomous network to promote the creation of a humane, just, sustainable and culturally appropriate economic system in South Africa. In our inaugural newsletter called SANE Society, I wrote in the editorial that we had a strong values-based agenda to identify and promote economic solutions which enhance ecological sustainability, equity and social justice, decentralization and devolution of economic power and multi-level self-reliance with interdependence, all in an appropriately South African context. Quite a mouthful. A good deal of our inspiration and ideas came from the New Economics Foundation, or NEF, in London, which I had contacted during my master's to solicit support for me setting up a similar organization in South Africa. In fact, before returning to South Africa, I had met up with Simon Zadek, who was working at NEF at the time on various projects such as social auditing and alternative indicators of progress, I share some of Zadek's insights on these and other subjects in Chapter 8. The same Foundation's newsletters reflected our passionate, albeit amateurish, attempt to challenge the status quo, with articles like Values in Economics, Internet Communities, Governments of the Future, Citizens' Income for South Africa, Unitax for Social and Environmental Sustainability, A New Appreciation for Work, national eco-accounts, how globalization affects South Africa, and conventional economics fails to deliver on promises. We found ourselves referencing global dissident voices like David Corton, Robert Costanza, and George Soros, and forming alliances with organizations like the Alternative Information Development Center, AIDC, a grassroots activist organization that was a perfect complement to our rather more academic network. We even discovered an ally in the Anglican Church, especially in its outspoken Archbishop of Cape Town, who succeeded his rather more famous and no less feisty predecessor, Desmond Tutu. Financial Market Reform for my part, I found myself warning about the effects of the casino economy and calling for financial market reform. As I wrote at the time in 1987, each day over a trillion dollars passed through the world's financial markets, a 14-fold increase since 1980, which is mostly accounted for by the explosive growth in derivatives trading since it first began on the Philadelphia Stock Exchange in 1971. Of this, only between 2% and 5% is related to international trade in real goods, a phenomenon which U.S. critic David Corton calls delinking money from value. The effects of speculative activity of these proportions on real trade, however, can be significant and potentially harmful. One of the criticisms of speculative financial markets is that they divert capital away from long-term productive investment in the real economy 
in favor of short-term speculative investment in the virtual economy. Another is that these markets are becoming increasingly depersonalized and automated, in other words, high-tech and high-speed, operating without regard for the human or ecological consequences of their actions, but simply chasing the highest profits to be made. The worrying increase in the volatility and instability of the financial markets has numerous negative effects from destroying the livelihoods of small traders and growers and the cultural fabric of indigenous or rural communities, to increasing the uncertainties and risks of bankruptcy for businesses, and disrupting the plans of governments and the economies of small nations. All of these effects amount to a decrease in self-reliance at both national, community and individual levels. At the time that I was writing on these issues, although we talked about the systemic risk that speculative finance caused, I'm not sure any of us really believed that the mother of all meltdowns would ever come. The devastating domino effect following the collapse of Lehman Brothers and other banks in 2008 proved that we had been spot on about the risks, even if we were rather less forthcoming on solutions. Mostly we just touted the so-called Tobin tax. This is a proposal which its creator, Nobel laureate economist James Tobin, described as an internationally uniform tax on all spot conversions of one currency into another, proportional to the size of the transaction, suggesting a charge ranging from between 0.5% and 1%. Economist Rudy Dornbusch went further, suggesting a cross-border tax on all financial transactions, not only currency trades, which could be collected by national governments. Subsequently, the United Nations Development Programme, UNDP, commissioned a report by a group of influential economists which concluded in support of a Tobin fee of between 0.05% and 0.25%. This was later endorsed at the UN World Summit on Social Development in Copenhagen in March 1995, by some significant political leaders, including Mitterrand from France, Brundtland from Norway, and Rasmussen from Denmark. Later that year, at the G7 summit in Halifax, Canadian Human Resources Minister Lloyd Axworthy and UN High Commissioner for Human Rights Jose Ayala Lasso also expressed their solidarity. The vast majority of the world's political leaders, however, rejected the proposal and it was never implemented. U.S. policy analysts Makijani and Brown favoured Tobin's second reform route, proposing an international currency unit to be administered by a world central bank and based on an equivalent basket of goods in each country. The value of these baskets in domestic currency would determine relative exchange rates, which would therefore depend on real domestic economic conditions rather than short-term currency movements. As with the Tobin tax, the idea was not pursued. More is the pity, as I am not convinced that we are any closer to reducing the systemic risk of the casino economy, despite all the pain and suffering caused by the global financial crisis. The Growth Debate As co-founder of the SANE Foundation, I found myself walking a tightrope between challenging conventional economics with all its negative impacts on social justice and the environment and the tenets of new economics, which were also not beyond questioning. 
One of these sacred cows was the contention that conventional economic growth, as measured by gross domestic product, should be opposed. Books like Beyond the Limits to Growth by Danella Meadows, Dennis Meadows and Jorgen Randers and Beyond Growth by former World Bank economist Herman Daly were often cited. Later, in 2008, I had the opportunity to question these authors in person, but in 1997, using South Africa as my case in point, my position was simply, how can developing countries afford not to grow? South Africa desperately needed to follow its much-hailed political miracle with an economic miracle, if its liberation was to benefit the 40% unemployed. Realizing this, the ANC government had effectively replaced its human-centered Reconstruction and Development Program, the RDP, which formed the heart of its election manifesto, with something of an antithesis, namely the Growth, Employment and Redistribution, or GEAR, macroeconomic strategy. To its critics, GEAR looked disturbingly similar to a World Bank structural adjustment program with its promises of liberalizing trade and shooting for 6% GDP growth annually. But was it wrong for the South African government to be aiming for the highest possible growth in order to fund better housing, health and education for the majority of its population? I tended to agree with Chilean barefoot economist Manfred Max Neef and his threshold hypothesis, whereby growth and development move in parallel up to a threshold point, after which quality of life is eroded due to externalities such as health impacts of pollution and stress. I could see that the ANC, despite its socialist and communist proclivities, had very little choice about changing its economic philosophy if it wanted to benefit from globalization and international reinvestment. At the same time, this new market openness had its downside. For example, the textile industry, which had traditionally been a strong employer in the Cape region, suffered greatly losses as businesses shifted offshore to take advantage of the lower labor costs in countries like Malaysia. Given these pressures and constraints, I found myself wrestling with the question of whether moving beyond growth, such as Herman Daly and others proposed, could have much practical application for developing countries. South Africa had chosen the growth path because it was staring economic destitution and social bankruptcy in the face. In this instance, wasn't growth the more sustainable and responsible option? In the end, I concluded that growth is not inherently bad, but civil society must continually pressure both government and business to be more transparent and accountable for the social and environmental impacts of economic growth. It is interesting that today, 15 years later, the growth versus development debate is still raging. Books like Tim Jackson's Prosperity Without Growth from 2010 have become bestsellers. Jackson restates the challenge starkly. He says, Questioning growth is deemed to be the act of lunatics, idealists and revolutionaries, but question it we must. Others, like Jonathan Porritt in his book Capitalism as if the World Matters from 2005, argue for smart growth instead of dumb growth, which I return to in chapter 24. Meanwhile, 
the global financial crisis has given Jackson's more uncompromising zero-growth position a renewed resonance. My view still echoes what I described as appropriate economic growth in the third world, in the Sane Society newsletter all those years ago. We cannot deny the benefits of economic growth. After all, it is economic growth that has allowed China, India and others to lift hundreds of millions of people out of abject poverty over the past 20 years. But we also need to be honest about the social and environmental costs of this growth. The world is getting more unequal as the gaps between rich and poor grow wider and the impact on the environment has been catastrophic. At the same time, the recent global financial crisis has demonstrated the suffering that occurs when growth stalls and unemployment rises, as it has in much of the West. It seems clear to me that we need economic growth. It is structurally and psychologically built into our global economic and social system, but it needs to be a qualitatively different kind of growth in which production and consumption are totally redesigned to have zero or even positive environmental impacts, and trade and employment practices are overhauled to ensure that Mark Kramer and Michael Porter's notion of shared value becomes more than just a popular new buzzword. Just how distant the goal of sustainability remains became abundantly clear when I began immersing myself in the world of big industry in South Africa.